Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolb. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview with All the Wiser is with Ed Gabigan. His unbelievable story of survival begins with the most simple of decisions, choosing which side of the street he would use to walk home after leaving the bar he had just opened in New York's East Village. This fateful night, Ed picked the wrong side of the street and encountered a group of teenage boys. Their assignments? To kill a random stranger as part of an initiation into a gang. His attackers used 10-inch blades and Ed was stabbed six times, being left for dead. Today, we talk about a lot of things. The details of this chance encounter, the days, weeks, and months that followed, debilitating panic attacks, what it's like to look your attackers in the eyes, give a victim impact statement, and the power of forgiveness. Here's today's interview with Ed Gavigan. Ed, hello, and welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you very much for having me on, Kimmy. Good to talk to you again. How would you describe yourself to our audience? Well, I would say in order of importance to me, the first way I describe myself is uh, as a father to my 10-year-old daughter, husband of 18 years to my wife. I have a design-build firm in Manhattan where I do architecture and construction. How would you describe the backdrop of your childhood? I would say the backdrop of my childhood is most prominently affected by my uh, father's job. When I was born, uh, my father was in Korea with the Air Force. When he returned from Korea, we moved to Texas where he was a drill sergeant, which had ramifications for my upbringing. You know, I had a, a very high and tight crew cut. Every two weeks, he would sit me out in the backyard in a chair with a sheet around my neck and give me a buzz cut. I can still remember the feeling of that clippers vibrating on my skull as as he took my hair off. But I think that had the biggest uh, impact on my life was, was the fact that we moved so much with my dad's job. So today, we're going to move forward in your life. And talk about a day in your past that changed the trajectory of your life, really. Changed everything. 
How would you describe where you were in your life at the time of the attack? I had moved to New York a couple of years earlier to try and make my, uh, I, I had kind of given up on working for architects. and I wanted to move to New York and start following my passion, which was to design and build furniture. So I opened up a little wood shop in the um, waterfront of Brooklyn. Then I got a job to build a bar for a guy who uh, was just opening uh, down in Soho, which was turning into this nightlife hub. And once I saw what it was like, because he, he always invited us back to have drinks at the bar, I thought, you know, I would love to be a partner in a bar. And then um, I knew another guy whose bar needed to be renovated and he didn't have enough money. And so at the end of the day, we made a deal where I would become a partner in the bar. Um, I had sort of struggled for a while in in the furniture business and then uh, risked everything I had, put every dime on the line to build this bar. And we had been open just about a month and a half. And I was walking down the street one night and these guys had come in from Brooklyn as part of a gang. And they were looking for someone to kill uh, the the initiation that they were a part of um, required them to kill somebody uh, to move up in the gang. And so they, um, they pounced on me and three of them began trying to stab me and, and kill me. And there were two lookouts at either end of the block to watch the whole thing go down. So that, that was a life changer. What do you remember about the moments of the attack, both emotionally, sensory, physically, sort of explain what it was like as it was happening? Well, it was the the night before Thanksgiving. So my um, focus was on going to dinner with um, friends and family the next day. And I was also thinking about my bar. I had just walked out of my bar. I was very proud of it. Thought we'd done a great job, especially considering the short time frame and the low budget. Then I see these kids coming toward me. And um, as a New Yorker, one thought I had was I I see these three kids walking toward me. I don't want to go between them. Um, So I stepped to the side to let them pass. And as I stepped to the side, they did not pass. They just um, jumped on me. And as they began to stab me, my first thought, my first real thought was, are, am I actually being stabbed? I just saw this knife plunge into my uh, shoulder up to the hilt. It was a 10-inch blade on the knife. And it it seemed so preposterous that this that we didn't there was not a word spoken. There was not a, uh, an altercation. They didn't ask me for a wallet or what time is it? Or, you know, uh, are you the guy that, uh, kicked my brother or there, there was nothing. So my first, um, actual thought was this, this cannot be what it seems like. But before I had, uh, articulated a thought in my head, 
um, when I was in college, I was at Notre Dame on the boxing team. My instincts from those years of, of boxing training kicked in and I put my hands up and I threw a uh, straight right punch to the middle guy. The guy on my left and the guy on my right were both stabbing me and the middle guy hadn't quite gotten his knife into me yet and I hit him uh, really hard and he went down and that's when uh, and that took maybe you know one second to happen and then I kind of climbed over him and began running down the street and that's when these thoughts of like I feel like I've just (laughs) some incredible incomprehensible thing has just overtaken me and I'm desperate to try and understand what's going on. And and as I ran, um, I had really severe injuries. Both lungs were collapsed. Um, my inferior vena cava had been cut, which is a big vein that brings all your blood back to your heart. And, uh, I, I felt very tired and I felt very out of breath and, um, very weak. And I went down to my hands and knees to, to try and, um, recoup and, f- and just figure out what was, what was going on. How many times were you stabbed? Uh, six. What happens next? And what happens when you have massive blood loss is your vision, uh, you get tunnel vision. So I couldn't really see what was going on. I looked out, it was just a field of blackness with two little like nickel sized, um, spheres of of vision that I could see from. And so I rolled over on my back and I was screaming and, um, there was a wait, a waitress on the corner, uh, standing outside having a cigarette and she came running over. And, um, then a couple of the other waitresses came over and people called 911 and there were very many lucky things about that night. One of them being that the hospital was only about six blocks away. So the ambulance was able to get to me really quickly. And when the ambulance um, pulled up, the guy got out and came over to me and um, put a needle in my neck. And then he grabbed my chin and he looked very intently down at my face and he said, uh, this is going to hurt. He ended up uh, slicing me open underneath my arm, just below my armpit, to shove a tube into my lung to drain the uh, and free up my air. Uh, and that hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. And uh, he pushed me on the chest and said, we have to do both sides. And so the good thing about that was I was able to begin breathing again. It still wasn't great, but uh, I had been suffocating in the moments prior to that. And then they got As me to the hospital and there, the surgeon worked. And Do you think you're dying? Well, I remember as I was lying there, I'm contemplating that, well, I'm definitely going to have to go to the hospital. And that's probably going to ruin Thanksgiving. So very kind of pragmatic. Like I'm going to have, they're going to put ice on me. I'm going to need some stitches. It's going to be a drag. And then the the difficulty that I was having breathing um, kind of made me panic. 
and there was just this realization dawning on me that I got stabbed. I saw the knife with the 10-inch blade. I am in really big trouble, and I don't know how anyone can fix. I had no idea at that point how many times I had been stabbed. I just knew that I'd been stabbed by by two guys many times each with um, with big knives. And the idea that this is how I'm going to die made me... My first thought was anger. And my second thought was regret. And I thought... Regret this over is, what? This is not fair. I, I, I have more things I want to do. And I felt that I had made mistakes in my life and I was trying to be a better person. And I thought now I'm, I'm just going to die being the guy that I am now. And I'm not very happy with that guy. And that, that filled me with regret that I, I wanted more time to um, fix myself. And there was no verbal interaction at all with the boys? Did they say anything when they left? No. No. They were shocked. You know, this wasn't something that they knew how to do. Uh, these were young kids. They were 17 years old. They, they, this was not, you know, they were not good at this. And so when it went so quickly awry, uh, I think they just ran. So the boys have fled. You are moved to the ambulance it was 2 a.m. on the night before Thanksgiving, so the streets were deserted, and they got me there right away. And um, the surgeon was, you know, the, the surgical team was just ready for me, and they were, were just, everything that they did contributed to saving my life that night. And then the, the surgeon came and removed about a third of my intestines and organs and then because I had uh, had basically two complete blood transfusions while they were working on me, he gave me about a 2% chance of living through the day uh, when he finally stitched me up. The hospital, you know, I was on life support and they began to try and call my family members and all of that. And uh, everyone that they were talking to, they just said, this guy has a very, very tough road ahead of him, and uh, it, we're, we're not very optimistic. In fact, they couldn't believe that I had lived through the surgery. What do you remember about first waking up from the surgery and, I, I guess, being cognizant um, the, in a real way for the first time of what's happened to you? Well, I when I came to from the anesthetic, the... Um, surgeon had asked if he could be there that they if the nurses would let him know because he wanted to um he wanted to see me and talk to me when i first emerged from anesthesia and i've struggled to try and convey to people what it feels like when you've had your entire chest opened up and your organs taken out and cut and pasted and patched and stitched and then stuffed back in and closed up plus six stab wounds on the back and the sides and the neck. Um, 
and the closest I can get to describing it is imagine being drenched in a in a freezing lake of pain. It's just uh, you know if you've ever jumped into icy water, that that shock of feeling that just makes you catch your breath and your eyes go wide open and your mouth opens and you just gasp at the pain. And that's what it was like. And, and it just did not let up. And I just lay there gasping with, with my mouth open and, um, and the surgeon was there at the foot of my bed and he just, uh, I remember him holding my foot, telling me how lucky I was. And then over the course of um, the next three to four days, I uh, I just I, I I got stronger and um, managed to. I, I they ended up taking me off the uh, life support, and so he was just trying to let me know that I had a long, hard road ahead of me. And that he was going to do everything that he could, but that he'd kind of already done his part. And now it was my part to hang in there and to keep fighting. And it's very difficult on your body to get that many units of blood and to have been basically gutted and to have, he had to lift up all of my organs and look for the, the knife wounds, you know, where they, it's like just stabbing through a, bag of apples, you know, and you look for each cut in the apples and you have to fix each one. So there was a lot that had gone wrong and there was a lot that still needed to uh, mend. And he, as I said, gave me a a 2% chance. He didn't tell me that, but everyone else, he was not optimistic that I was going to make it through the day. When he was that pessimistic about my chances to live through the day, my mother, uh, when she found out, you know, this is now Thanksgiving morning and my mom has woken up with the fact that I'm in on life support in the hospital. She knew then that she was flying to New York and would likely be bringing me back for a funeral. It's hard to describe what it felt like from inside that not knowing that I wasn't expected to live, but just knowing that every single thing was in agony. Then the district attorney came in with two homicide detectives from the NYPD, and uh, they were the ones that began to lay out what had happened. And the reason they could do that was that the guy that I had punched, um, they had caught and he gave up everybody else. And so they had five guys in custody, and um, they had found the knives. The guys had thrown the bloody knives on the subway tracks. So the evidence was just overwhelming against these kids, and they were now hoping that I that it was going to be attempted murder and not uh, murder. But the, I couldn't really talk or make more than a phrase, you know, words. So we didn't really have a conversation, but they they gave me the outline of what happened. But as I lay there, in between these waves of pain, and hearing them, 
you know, I had this like very jumbled kaleidoscopic episodic series of, of memories, flashbacks almost that came, uh, and I was able to sort of sort them out. You know, I had gone to the deli just before I was stabbed and I was walking to my friend's restaurant. All the pieces started to, um, coalesce into like a coherent memory of walking down the street. And then, you know, I remember punching the guy, but I don't remember what he looked like. And they are showing me these mug shots and they say, can you pick out the guy that you punched? And I'm looking at them and I'm just like, you know, I, there's, I have no, no recollection of faces. Also the, the face that I punched was, was in the moment and in the dark and at night and the picture that they're showing me is a mugshot of a, you know, a guy standing against the wall. So I'm looking at these pictures and they just were having no connection to my experience the night before. What you go through the surgeries, at what point are you discharged from the hospital and what is your reality in the days that followed that discharge? Well, on the eighth day, they came in and said, Mr. Gavigan, it's amazing how well you're doing, and we just think you should continue to get better at home. And they pulled all the tubes out of my chest and the catheter out, and but they took the morphine drip away and um, then gave me a bottle of uh, Percocet and a cane and a plastic garbage bag to put my possessions in, my... Uh, get well cards and a couple of uh, flower bouquets that hadn't wilted yet. And um, I went back to my apartment. It was very, very difficult because I couldn't lie on my back because of all the stab wounds. They had been packed with gauze. So it felt like I had golf balls, uh, flaming golf balls inserted under my skin. Yeah. So when I couldn't sleep, I, I could only, I couldn't lie down. I just could sit in a chair. Every time I would start to doze off, I just had these flashbacks and nightmares of the, um, the stabbing. And I had these just like recurring trains of thought about what did I do wrong? Why did I, did I say anything? You know, am I remembering this? Like, did I really not do anything? How did they pick me? Why did this? This is not fair. You know, it's a very um, not productive uh, line of thinking. And I know because you and I have talked about it that obviously goes without saying, I believe that you were experiencing deep depression, PTSD, which sort of became a, a lifelong struggle. And that your family reached out and you eventually go home to Wyoming shortly after this. Can you tell me about that? The thing, the my mom was there, you know, she'd come out while I was in the hospital. So I got out the first week of December. Now it's almost um, Christmas time. So my mom says, why don't you just come back home to Wyoming you know, have Christmas with us. And, but the thing that I was going to clarify about the depression is that for the first 
six or eight months, I did not feel depressed. I felt elated that I had lived. I felt like I had triumphed. I had overcome. I was, um, I was definitely in pain and there was, you know, definitely a lot wrong, but my primary, um, emotion was that I have just done the impossible and I have made it, this is remarkable. And I felt so lucky. But what happened is after the first anniversary of being stabbed, people are kind of over it. You know, they don't want to hear that you're having a hard time sleeping or that you, these flashbacks are still very, very troubling, these intrusive memories. And so what happens is in the first six months, you're able to say, oh, I can't do that because I was nearly murdered 12 weeks ago or 18 weeks ago. But after a year, and I looked fine, I was thinner, but you know, if I'm walking around shirt and pants and boots and going to a meeting and, but that I, I couldn't get on the subway and I just sat on the curb and cried or sat on a park bench and cried. You've talked about being in New York and the road that led to a dark depression over many, many months. How would you describe your lowest of low? The lowest of low came when I had been trying to take medication. I did not have any insurance. I did not have a real doctor. Um, I did not, I, I, I couldn't pay for anything. So I had a doctor that was giving me Prozac samples that I was taking, but it was not enough. I was in just dire fear of everything. I just, I couldn't believe that uh, I wasn't going to be just killed and I would just have these panic attacks or I'd, I'd be in a meeting, you know, I'd get a job with a construction company and somebody would start yelling about why things were late and I had been on the job for a month and I would just look at them and I would start to cry and, uh, you know, you, you can't keep your job in the construction industry in New York if you cry in the meeting. Construction so, workers in New York are not allowed to cry. Yeah. Memo. No, no. And that I felt like nobody understood what I was going through, which is is kind of true because nobody said to me anything about PTSD. Nobody, um, I say that people had one of three responses to me in those times rather than listening to me, actually listening to what I was afraid of and, and helping me, people would say to me, well, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And that was a terrible feeling because I, I did not feel stronger. And the other thing people would say was, well, everything happens for a reason. And that just seemed so glib and so unsympathetic. So I felt like I had now, you know, this is on my third anniversary of the stabbing. I had exhausted every 
avenue of help. Nothing was getting better. In fact, things were getting worse. Everyone who had helped me was sick of helping me. Their, all my resources were played out. And I just felt that there was, there was no longer any reason for me to continue to exist. When did it change? What was your moment of change? Well, I don't think there was a moment. I think wanting to die is its own shock when when uh, people then realize that oh he's not just he's not just the sad guy he is he is going to kill himself. That's a moment where you um you well you you can't continue like that you have to either recognize that as difficult as it is you're going to keep going and that you know and that if you can look around sometimes people who are there that you might have overlooked before and then you know i'd have minor successes and then i'd have uh setbacks I guess the thing, the most important thing was I had someone who believed in me, you know, my girlfriend just kept believing that I was going to be able to get better and that I was a good person who was worth the effort. Were you, know, you guys together at the time? No. Out of curiosity, how did you meet your girlfriend at the time and do you remember first telling her about what had happened to you well she was a um bartender at my bar and my partner told her what happened to me so the thing about her that was in addition to her, her very striking beauty was that she listened to me as i struggled she didn't tell me to, you know, you've just got to put this in the past or you've just got to do X, Y, or Z. She just, she would let me articulate even worse. When I couldn't articulate, she would just let me cry. A lot of people can't sit next to someone who's crying without trying to make them stop. <laughs> you know, they'll just say anything. Please, God, just stop crying. I can't, I can't let you cry like this. And Sometimes that's uh, what's needed is to cry. So, you know, I found that most people do not know uh, how to respond to somebody's overwhelming grief or pain. And in those cases where you don't know what to do, it's better to say nothing or to say that you, you don't know what to do than it is to say, listen, it all happens for a reason. Because I guarantee you that the person to whom it is happening does not feel like there's a very, very good reason. That's so true. I've never thought in those terms that people really don't have a tolerance to just sit quietly and let people sit in their pain. Because the human instinct is to comfort or, you know, to say something that'll bring them out of it. And that's not what you needed. And she, she knew that. And I think uh, you're, I think you're right about the human instinct is to comfort, but I think there's an even more base human instinct, which is to avoid pain. <laughs> and so 
that by by witnessing this person's pain, it's painful to you, and you are there now trying to say, "How do I make this person's pain go away so I don't have to feel their pain with them?" I meant to say what you said. <laughs> no, um, I mean I, I meant that you're right in. No, no, no. In, I com- yeah, I completely um, agree. The comfort is because it's so uncomfortable for the other person to sit in it as well. Beautifully put. Over the four years that we're talking about, there were trials for your attackers, and you participated as part of the criminal justice system. What was that experience for you? I I didn't really want them to go to prison. You know? Because I didn't think prison was going to help them. I understood that these were teenagers and that there was a moment for me when on, you know, when you, when you ask me about moments where uh, things changed a really pivotal moment when I was, I had just been fired from a job and I was sitting on Fifth Avenue along Central Park. I see this guy go walking by with a very fancy suit and a shiny briefcase and his polished shoes and his hundred dollar haircut. And as he walked by, I just saw his silk tie and uh, I just wanted to tackle him and knock him onto the ground and kneel on his chest and punch him in the face and make him feel the chaos and terror that was in my head. I wanted to just choke him and look into his eyes and say, you think you are so good. You think your smarts and your savvy and your abilities, you're walking down the street and all your fancy life, and you think everything you're doing is keeping you there. But it's just luck. It's just luck. A car could jump the curb. I could hurt you. And as I sat there watching him walk by, thinking about doing this to him, and I got this sense of like, he'd never know what hit him. I would just ruin his whole day. And, you know, I let him walk. I didn't attack him. And as I sat there, kind of shocked at myself, it occurred to me that I had just wanted to hurt a stranger to make a point about what was wrong in my life. And in that moment, I understood that I had just become someone like my attackers and that I was closer to them than I was to the guy that I had known my whole life, who was me, that that guy was gone. And in that um, understanding, I, I knew I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to have those thoughts. And I certainly didn't want to act on those thoughts. And so the end result of sitting on that bench was this commitment that I, I need to not try and get back to anything that I had before that all that was gone, that I had been trying for these years to get my life back. And that day, there was just a sense that I need to be, 
I need to start over with what I have now and let go of whatever there was that no longer existed. In the trials, what did you learn? I'm curious about the broader context of the boys and their involvement in the gang and what led them to that street that night. One thing that was very obvious when I walked in is that on, it was like at a wedding, you know, on the left side is the victim's people, the district attorney and his assistant and the police detectives and me and a couple of my friends And on their side, there was no family, there was no girlfriend, no gang members, certainly. And they had one person, uh, their court-appointed lawyer. And so I knew that they had committed this crime in order to move up in a gang. And the reason they were in the gang was that they wanted to belong to something, be a part of something, be protected. You know, that's the function of a gang have a purpose in life. And here they are. They had screwed that up. I didn't die. They're not in the gang. They're arrested. They're going to prison. And they're 17, 18 years old. And so I looked at them like, or in in the court setting, they weren't terrifying. They weren't intimidating. They, they didn't look old enough to buy cigarettes at the bodega, you know, that's, that's what they looked like. And when I got to speak that, you know, I got to make a victim's impact statement for each one of them. I tried to say that, um, that I, that I was profoundly disturbed by the waste, by the waste of my life and the waste of their life that, that the time and energy that had been wasted on on both of our behalf um, was really a shame. Is that cathartic at all to look them in the eyes and have that conversation? Yes. Yes, it was. And I think that it also, um, I think it was a shock to them because a lot of people in my position, and certainly I felt it too, just want to yell and, and be angry, you know? And I certainly had that, that full range of emotion, but I knew somehow in my gut that if I just screamed at them, he would just look at me like some yuppie complaining and that I would not get through to him. And so by me telling him that I forgave him, which I did, and that I was taking the step of forgiving him so that I can move on, and that by me doing that, he will also be able to move on knowing that I don't hate him. I did know that getting putting down that anger would give me the, the energy and the strength to, to get better. And that it's very hard to get better because it takes so much energy if you're wasting energy on this uh, this hatred and, and these ideas of revenge. Do you know where they are today? Are they still in prison? No, they're out. And I, um, 
I was actually contacted by uh, that guy Van Jones with the show on, I think it's CNN, about whether I would want to be uh, in touch with them. I I just don't I don't think I'm ready for that. You've spoken in beautiful detail about your lows and your pains. What was your path out? What are the things you did to actively begin to find yourself again? The the path out was, I tried everything. I just kept trying to find what would work. And so when I say that forgiving those guys, I learned that that worked for me to give me energy to to do the other things that I had to do. The main thing, I guess, is to keep trying to find things that work. And by work, I mean that are sustainable patterns of life, you know. What are some of those things? You know, having good habits, um, trying to be fit, trying to watch what you put in your body, you know, I, I never went to AA. I just had a point where, you know, smoking and drinking and drugs and escaping that way just don't really work. That is, is the problem. The thing that, you know, you end up saying, well, I guess I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to try and have some discipline about myself. I'm going to try and look at what's not working. You know, when I'm I'm getting fired because I'm crying in these meetings, I need to go to therapy. I don't really like going to therapy, but there's something that I need to fix and I'm I'm not able to fix it on my own. And so where are you today with depression and PTSD? I also now find that in in a good way, you know, I'm in meetings now where things get very stressful and People are freaking out about the budget or the schedule. And and I'm there in the back of my head. I'm thinking, you know, I've, I've been made homeless after I was almost murdered. I want to do a good job on this project, but we're all going home tonight to a soft bed in a warm house with food on the table. And uh, I'm going to do my best, but I'm not going to freak out like you guys are freaking out over this. We're going to... We're going to get it done. And, uh, you know, I, I just, so now I have this in, in, in some areas, I have a really amazing calm and, uh, composure just because I've seen all the way at the other end of the spectrum and been through that, you know, and so that can be really helpful. Do you think that there is any piece of you that has been changed for the better by this experience? Yeah, I think there's a a number of things for, you know, some are maybe very simple, like, you know, before I got stabbed, if I heard somebody talking about having a panic attack, I might've been a little bit, uh, arrogant about like a panic attack (laughs) who has panic attacks like that's weak that's that's a failure 
you know, and I was a tough guy. I, I never, you know, the idea that I would have a panic attack is ludicrous, you know, panic attack is for someone who can't handle things. And, uh, I can tell you now that I have had a panic attack on the subway at rush hour and getting through that is, um, life-changing and you will never, uh, mock somebody again. You know, you'll never, there's a, there's an empathy, you know. In sharing your story so openly and bravely, what do you hope people who are listening take away from it? I think I, uh, I find that when I talk about those things, I, uh, I'm reminding myself to be very grateful for where I am. I'm, I'm here today. I'm able to, uh, I'm alive. You know, I, I almost was not, and I've been given this time now and having a minute to talk with you reminds me, you know, I have a busy week. I have jobs and projects and to-do lists and I got to pick my kid up at school and I got an argument with the wife and I've got a siren in the traffic and all of that. And now, you know, I get to spend a minute or few with you reflecting and, and reorienting myself back to that, that fundamental gratitude of, of being here and feeling that I know I, I yearn to be encouraged by other people in their struggles. And if anyone can be encouraged by me and mine, then I'm happy. Well, thank you for, thank you for trusting me to have this conversation. And I do think that people will be moved by your story and your strength. So on that note, we are going to end with a little something called rapid fire. Ed, you better have been listening to All the Wiser and know what this is. <laughs> or you're effed. Um, so you ready? Okay. All right. Let's do it. Your favorite movie? My favorite movie. All that jazz. Favorite way to spend a Sunday morning? Running with my daughter. Favorite ice cream parlor? Ice cream parlor. I just called it a parlor, yes. <laughs> um, well, I would say um, there's this gelato store in Rome that would be my favorite. Beach or mountains? Mountains. Favorite song? Um... The one that's coming first to mind is uh, The Carpenters, <laughs> but it's pretty corny. So um, We'll take corny. What is yeah, it? Yeah, top of the world. <laughs> Greatest words of wisdom. I think my, my guiding principle would be you might be wrong about everything or anything. And so just whoever you are, don't 
be quite so sure. Keep your mind open to the question. And if you're used to having the same answer, make sure that that answer continues to work. Ed, thank you again for today. And is there anywhere that we can follow you on social media, online, any places you hang out? Um, I, I do not do that. I know that I should. You should but, not. Um, you no. should not. <laughs> Let's move on. Okay. Um, well, it has been almost a year since I first read about your story, heard your story. And we met to chat about doing this interview at a now-closed Dina DeLuca in New York. <laughs> um, but I'm so glad that we were finally able to have this conversation and really hope that, that people are moved by your story and everything that you have to share with the world. So thank you, Ed, thank you. and enjoy your afternoon in New York. Thanks. I can't wait to um, see you again. All right. Take care, Ed. All right. Bye-bye. On behalf of Ed and his story, he has asked us to split our charitable donation with the Legacy of War Foundation and RandomActs.org. Legacy of War aims to empower communities and individuals to rebuild their lives after unthinkable conflict. In the wake of war, Legacy of War Foundation does things like this. Going in there and providing educational scholarships, specialized training in wearing prosthetics, providing land for farms. These are just some of the many ongoing and planned projects they have going on around the world. Their ethos is always to find and fund programs that are appropriate, affordable, and sustainable. You can learn more about their work at LegacyOfWarFoundation.com. While you're at it, check out RandomAxe.org. As you know it all the wiser, we love a good story. Well, Random Axe inspires many amazing things and stories around the world every day. From small acts, such as inspiring someone to simply buy a stranger a cup of coffee, to much bigger acts of kindness, like building a school in Nicaragua. All of these acts of kindness contribute to a bigger story. Their message that Random Acts embodies and promotes, that you too can conquer the world, one random act of kindness at a time. Between these two charities and Ed's ability to heal and persevere, I hope you have found some inspiration in today's episode of All the Wiser. As always, thanks for listening and have a great day. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Juan Diego from Harmonics. And our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. As always, thank you for listening. I hope if you like today's episode, you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast and enjoy the rest of your day. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.